Morris Earls, when I asked you to choose a piece of writing that's had a big impact on you, you chose this iconic novel by James Joyce, A Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man. To me, this novel is a coming-of-age story and speaks to most young people who think they're slightly different, slightly apart from the group. What was your first reading of A Portrait of the Artist like for you? Well, A Portrait of the Artist is, by common agreement, one of the 20th century's great novels. And as such, it has attracted critics' attention from around the world. Most of the critics have focused on issues like the elaborate structure of the novel, its, its language, and the mythological fabric that Joyce drew on to write his book. It is substantially set in Dublin, and reading it as a Dubliner and as a citizen of Dublin, I found myself focusing more on its local resonances. The novel, like Ulysses and Dubliners, is substantially set in Edwardian Dublin. Now, when I read it first, that seemed a long way off and Stephen seemed quite strange and yet curiously familiar also. And reflecting on it in later years, I realised that Edwardian Dublin actually survived up until the 1960s in Dublin to a substantial degree. Why was that? Well, this was, I think, this was to do with the difficulties of the new state getting up and going after many centuries of colonial subordination. It wasn't a question of simply switching on a light. There was a lot of negative things that had been built up in the economy and elsewhere that had to be overcome. There wasn't much money around. And as a result, not a great deal changed. And in the Dublin of the 1960s, I realised that people thought and engaged with the world and spoke in ways that were very similar to the characters in Joyce's work and in A Portrait. Now, the interesting thing is that when Dublin changed, began to change significantly in the 1960s, this sense of recognition didn't actually recede. And I think that the reason is that two of the great public issues, the novel is balanced between the public issues and Stephen's private progress and development as a coming of age experience towards the recognition that he wishes to be an artist. But the two great public issues in late 20th century Ireland, that is to say after Ireland in its and Dublin in its physical form cease to be recognisably Edwardian, are found at the centre of a portrait of the artist. They are related to Irish nationalism and the social and political role of the Catholic Church. Early in the first chapter, we have Stephen remembering his aunt's hairbrushes, one of which was mauve, backed, and the other green. That's right, yes. One was for Parnell, that was the green one, and the mauve one was for Davitt, the land leaguer. The aunt 
Dante, which derived from the Cork pronunciation of ante, Dante, was a fervent nationalist, as was Stephen's father, Simon Dedalus. But of course there was this huge row on Christmas Day over Parnell. Parnell was probably the greatest constitutional nationalist that the country ever produced. He was the only one who, using constitutional means, had the British on the back foot. He was adored by a generation. For uh, the Americans in the audience, having the British on the back foot means what? Well, it means that he went to the British Parliament in Westminster and had absolutely no respect for it. He went with one purpose only, to advance the interests of Ireland, and he used the numerical advantage he had to extract massive concessions from the British. And it did look as if he was going to win a very substantial measure of autonomy for the country. But things went wrong. The Catholic Church, along with massive sections of English society, turned on him because of his relationship with Kitty O'Shea. And this was considered morally deviant. And Nationalist Ireland split on the subject and Parnell died prematurely. And the row in the first chapter of a portrait is about this. Stephen's father and the old Fenian, Mr. Casey, are ardent Parnellites. Dante believes that as an Irish woman, she must support the church. It's interesting because Bill Clinton seems to be a popular character in Ireland, a popular former United States president, and he too had his problems with the women. Yes, it's not something I think that we worry about too much now in the second decade of the 21st century, but from the period of, let's say, modernization or radical modernization from the 70s onwards, there were great debates about the public role of the church and they mostly related to questions of divorce and abortion and issues like that. And Irish society were debating those and debating whether the views of the church should be incorporated in the laws of the state or not. It was very divisive and I would say that it has been settled only within the last couple of years and there is now in de facto two separate spheres, if you like, the, that of the church and the state and they are, they are separate. But that ran over the last 40 years, that debate and that tension. And so even though uh, the physical fabric of Edwardian Dublin had ceased to exist in significant measure, the subject matter from Joyce's novel was still very relevant, as of course was the question of Irish nationalism and in particular the legitimacy or otherwise of political violence which we have wrestled with in this country over the last four decades and have only satisfactorily resolved within the last couple of years. So throughout the 20th century and the 21st century, the issues that are at the heart of Joyce's novel were very meaningful for Irish men or women reading a portrait. It wasn't something that was back in history. 
even though it was a century old, it was very germane to our lives. You describe the way the Irish church turned against Parnell, and it brings to mind this phrase in A Portrait of the Artist, Stephen Dedalus is proclaiming his independence and speaking with some schoolmates, he says, when the soul of a man is born in this country, there are nets flung at it to hold it back from flight. You talk to me of nationality, language, religion. I shall try to fly by those nets. Is this an Ireland that you related to when you were younger? Well, I would say that as a young adult, I was very hostile to the social power of the Catholic Church. I would have been part of a minority at that stage, but as the decades passed, it's become a much more substantial position. In fact, it's almost a safe position. It's a boringly safe position to have now, and in fact, it's almost irrelevant because the church's power has decreased so radically. But back in the 70s, I would have felt very strongly that there were forces like that impeding one's freedom, one's political freedom, one's social freedom, and one's individual freedom. Did you identify with Stephen Dedalus? Well, <laughs> I wouldn't go that far because he is an extremely intense young man, and he's beyond the normal range of intensity. Joyce deliberately created him that way. In many ways he's very admirable. He's almost like the level of intensity. He, he'd remind you almost of a, a Shakespearean hero, uh, the, 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 his unwillingness to compromise and so on. But of course he's not a, a hero in that sense because it's the 20th century and we, 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 didn't, we don't do tragic heroes like that. And I think even at times Joyce is slightly smiling at his intensity. And it's significant, I think, that even though there is this huge overlap between Stephen and Joyce, that it is called a portrait of the artist. It's not the portrait. I think Joyce deliberately uses the indefinite there. Um, he's not saying, this is me. His young man, the artist, is extremely self-absorbed. Mm -hmm. And reading the book now, I am picking that up. When I was younger and I read it, I think I was more blind to the egotism of Stephen Dedalus. I was on his side more identifying, I, I confess, with him. Now he seems to be an antisocial fellow who runs roughshod over people's feelings. A friend of his is saying, well, can't you basically do it for your mother? Go to confession. Who cares mm -hmm. if you believe it or not? Do this for her. Hasn't she suffered enough? And he basically says no. Yes. Well, that's really what the novel is about. It's about his strength. And in a sense, it is a moral strength. The strength to reject the nets. The strength to reject what is offered to him. He goes to Clongos and he sees the upper middle classes. This uh, is his? His boarding school. And he's amongst the upper middle classes. And he sees through their uh, hypocrisy, he sees through their shallowness, and he rejects that world. And he goes on to reject other worlds. The dynamic in his life which sort of helps him or drives him to reject the various possibilities that are there as inadequate 
I believe is to do with the social decline of the family. The family start out in relative luxury out in Black Rock, a wonderful Christmas meal, etc. Where is Black Rock? Black Rock is a suburb to the south of Dublin. It's still a, a nice address to come from. And the father drank. And also the economy and the population was declining at that time and the family experienced a social decline. They follow a journey from Black Rock and at one point towards the end they're in Drumcondra, which is in the north of the city, drinking their tea from jam jars. So it's quite a decline. They go from relative upper middle class prosperity to really having nothing. And you might say social climbing, you, I don't know if you learn very much from social climbing. You might learn self-congratulation and a certain smugness. But going the other direction, going down, if you survive it, insight and wisdom are possible outcomes as you observe everything on your, your way down in a very thoughtful way. And that is really what happened Stephen. That is why he sees through so many things that are offered him. He sees through the manners of the middle classes. He sees through the sort of shallow nationalist politics of his peers in university. He sees through the program of the university itself run by these English Jesuits, although one of his great heroes is the founder Newman, whose prose he, he, he respected and liked very much. The decline, the social decline, is what provides the energy or the force that alienates him from what is around. But then added to that his own deep driven personality that enables him to reject his dysfunctional family and its ties and decline to perform his Easter duties to satisfy his mother and so on and end up choosing the role of an artist having rejected the church too one of the most powerful sections of writing ever I think is the the retreat given by Father Arnell and that is a classic counter-reformation account of hell <laughs> and without being too reductive its purpose was to frighten the audience into conformity. In the 17th century it was about frightening them away from reformationism and in this 20th century it was about frightening people away from secularism and when I was in school in the 1960s we were told things like that at retreats and they weren't as stylish uh, <laughs> but I can recognize many of the elements that were in them. Actually there are some choice passages in A Portrait of the Artist that illustrate Stephen's terror at these sermons. Uh, perhaps you can choose a section and, and read it for us. Certainly. This short paragraph that I'm going to read tells of Stephen's thoughts during the retreat. The retreat was a very, very powerful few days in which Father Arnell described for the boys the terrors of hell and the consequences of sin and the consequences of going against God. Prior to that, Stephen had been leading a dissolute life. He was socially alienated and found himself visiting prostitutes and living in what would definitely have been said to have been sin. Many of the forces he encountered in his school, in his fellows, in his family 
had no effect on this path of going his own way of Stephen. The church was a more formidable obstacle. The church had 2,000 years of thinking about human psychology and the human condition behind it, and it was a major challenge for Stephen. And the retreat was the moment in which Stephen's individuality broke down for a period. And this is his response to Father Arnal's very strong sermons. Every word of it was for him, against his sin, foul and secret, the whole wrath of God was aimed. The preacher's knife had probed deeply into his disclosed conscience, and he felt now that his soul was festering in sin. Yes, the preacher was right. God's turn had come. Like a beast in his lair, his soul had lain down in its own filth, but the blasts of the angel's trumpet had driven him forth from the darkness of sin into the light. The words of doom cried by the angel shattered in an instant his presumptuous peace. The wind of the last day blew through his mind, his sins, the jewel-eyed harlots of his imagination, fled before the hurricane, squeaking like mice in their terror and huddled under a mane of hair. <laughs> terror is the force which drives Stephen back into the arms of the church. And he spends a period embracing this terror, embracing this fear, and finally he goes to confession. And in the period after that, he moves out of the terror phase, if you like, of Catholicism, and he embraces a very comprehensive Catholic spirituality. And those are also extraordinary scenes of writing, Joyce describing this transformation and the spiritual life of the young Stephen. Are there parallels for you in any of that, Morris? <clears throat> well, um, I would have uh, gone through a pious period as a child, but it would not have been anything like that which Joyce went through as an adolescent. As a, I imagine he's about 16 or 17 at the time of this pious period. Joyce or Stephen? Stephen. Stephen, of course. What about Joyce? Well, we don't really know, or at least I don't really know, but I think that in many respects the experiences of Stephen echo those of Joyce and um, it's very easy to drift from thinking that they're f uh, from one to the other. I would say that Joyce was not quite as obsessive as uh, the young Stephen and was probably more humane and given his life in Trieste, uh, what we know of his life in Trieste, he may have been a bit more easygoing than Stephen. And that brings me really to something that I think it is important to emphasize that while Stephen was busy rejecting all around him, he was formed by the experience of his family life in Ireland. He was formed by his father's politics. And as I said, when he went to Trieste, he, he actually wrote Ulysses, which could not have been written without his father's 
input and without having listened over the years to his father's talk and so on. And Joyce, like Simon Dedalus and like his own father, Stanislaus Joyce, they were all Parnellites. They were latter-day Parnellites. That's what their politics were. And Joyce wanted to transcend the shallowness and conformity of much of the Irish life and culture that he encountered. He wanted to build on what he had experienced in Ireland and to discover something true about himself and about Ireland and to forge in the smithy of his soul the uncreated conscience of his race. This was his objective. How did the Irish, as far as you know, respond to Joyce's <clears throat> efforts to do this, to forge their uncreated conscience? I think it took quite a while for the Irish to recognize that their great novelist was James Joyce, and that their greatest modern artist was James Joyce. There were periods the first decades of independence were very socially conservative and people were offended by a novel in which you know people visited the toilet and things like that. This was considered improper, never mind the graphic sexual uh, references uh, and episodes in, in Ulysses. So there, there was, until perhaps I suppose around the 60s, outside a small set, there would have been a general dislike of Joyce. Joyce wrote in English. Mm -hmm. Do you know if he even knew Irish? Joyce was a Parnellite. Parnell was not about revivalism. This was a later 19th century idea. It had its origins in the early 19th century, Thomas Davis and people like that. But as a mechanism, as a means, if you like, of advancing Irish national interests, reviving the language was late 19th, early 20th century phenomenon. Joyce did not accept that that was the way to go. He accepted that he was born speaking English. And of course the English that he was born speaking was Hiberno-English, the English that we speak in Ireland, perhaps a little less than we used to the English that is structured and influenced by Irish language, syntax, and so on. And I believe that he felt it was true to his own experience to switch completely, and that what he wanted to do was to capture Irish experience in Hiberno-English, in the language in which it was substantially experienced. And I think that is what he did do. The book ends with basically a diary entry of Stephen Dedalus's April 16, Away, Away, and he leaves. We know that Joyce went to Trieste, but we don't know where Stephen Dedalus is going. We do know that he's not going to England, and he's breaking the pattern of cultural subordination. He's going to Europe and he believes that it is in Europe that Ireland's destiny and his own destiny as an artist can be realized and of course he was correct and this is what present difficulties aside 
This is how Ireland actually managed to break out of Edwardian poverty by embracing Europe. Maurice Earls, thank you very much. Thank you.